down women with diluted dreams are home for joy has been washed down the stream. I'm Robin Hawkins, and you're listening to Watered Down Women. Hoping to be free, found a new home in the cemetery. Have you ever walked past someone and noticed something different about them, and it causes you to take a second glance? Maybe the individual walked with a noticeable limp or was disfigured in such a way that you felt compelled to take a longer look at them. Sadly, most of us are guilty of this behavior and become embarrassed if that person makes eye contact with us. And honestly, maybe we deserve to feel a bit of shame because of our behavior. A few years ago, I underwent surgery that removed a portion of the right side of my face and was followed by major reconstructive surgery. About a week after my stitches were removed, I finally ventured out of the house and went shopping. While washing my hands in the restroom at JCPenney, a lady walked up to the sink next to me and we made eye contact in the mirror because I could feel her staring at me. When I caught her eye, she said, What on earth happened to you? Did your face go through a windshield? My first response was to detail what happened by telling her my story. But then I hesitated, made a point to look her directly in the eye, and then walked away without saying a word. Why is it that human beings, especially women, feel the need to explain themselves when being judged or criticized. It's hard to understand the reasoning behind a person's compelling desire to justify her existence or the urgency to rationalize her actions. By looking at someone, we can assume or surmise anything we want to about them. But our speculation doesn't make it true, nor does it make it valid. This notion reminds me of the lyrics of an old Ricky Van Shelton song that states, If she seems cold and bitter, then I beg of you, just stop and consider all she's gone through. Don't be quick to condemn her for the things she might say. Just remember, life turned her that way. When Betty Dyer disappeared on that cold December day, her family contacted the local authorities to report her as missing. Some Mansfield police officers were familiar with Betty Dyer's name because she had prior arrests for intoxication and disorderly conduct. When they received the call, a preliminary investigation was conducted, but the patrolman did not express a sense of urgency in her case and advised the family to notify them if Betty returned home. 
In researching the lives of watered-down women victims, I try to peel off the layers of events and circumstances to reveal the true character of each woman. And while chronicling the accounts of Betty's life, I became very curious as to the details of her backstory. Because a mother of six doesn't just walk away from her children, her parents, and her siblings. So to paint a clearer picture of Betty, let's go down to Olive Hill, Kentucky, to the year 1928. Let's pull back the curtains and take a peek into the life of her parents and see what life was like for these Appalachian newlyweds. For centuries, young girls have dreamed of meeting their Prince Charming, their knight in shining armor, throwing a grand wedding celebration and living happily ever after. Undoubtedly, young Hattie Nip shared that same desire and probably felt that very same sense of excitement when she met a young man fresh from serving in the United States Navy, a striking sailor named Theodore Tilden Edmiston. Theodore was 23 years old when he wed the lovely 19-year-old Hattie Florence Nip. Eager to start life with his bride-to-be, the former Navy man accepted a job as a laborer on a road project and rented a house in Carter County, Kentucky for him and his betrothed. The couple exchanged nuptial vows on October 27, 1928 and began there happily ever after. Life seemed promising during that late fall season as Herbert Hoover won by a landslide in his presidential bid against the New York Governor Alfred E. Smith. Hopes for a healthy world abounded as Dr. Alexander Fleming, while working at St. Mary's Hospital in London, returned from vacation and found green mold growing in a petri dish. A mold that was actually destroying the bacteria which was left in the dish. He originally called his discovery mold juice and later developed it into what we know today as penicillin. Charles Lundberg piloted the Spirit of St. Louis for the very last time as he donated the famous plane to the Smithsonian. And Amelia Earhart received a life-changing phone call when she was invited to become the first female passenger to cross the Atlantic Ocean by plane. The Boulder Dam Project Act was passed by Congress, bubblegum was introduced to the world, and Disney's Steamboat Willie, featuring Mickey Mouse, was the first animated film to introduce sound. The former Hattie Nip, now Mrs. Theodore Edmiston, might have left for her honeymoon sporting that year's biggest fashion trend the snug-fitting 
aviation-style hat, which featured a draped crown of file ribbon, a silk velvet brim bordered with plush flowers. Their world probably felt perfect to this young couple as they said goodbye to 1928 and eagerly ushered in 1929. Little did they know the world was about to come to a crashing halt. Perhaps the St. Valentine's Day Massacre that February, or the death toll from the influenza outbreak reaching over 200,000 worldwide, or maybe the March 25th mini-crash on Wall Street were omens. But nothing could prepare these newlyweds or anyone else for what was to come on October 29th of that year. Life, as precarious as it must have seemed, did move forward for the Edmistons and for the world. On August 28, 1930, Hattie and Theodore welcomed their first child as Betty Jo Edmiston made her debut onto the world stage. Undoubtedly, this little girl brought a great sense of pride and joy for her parents and was probably the center of attention in their Olive Hill, Kentucky home. Time passed quickly and their family grew with the birth of their second daughter, Louise, who was born in 1932. Baby William was born in 1935 but died of meningitis at only three months of age. Their sister Mary was born in 1940, and life was happy for the Edmiston family. While Betty and Louise, who the family nicknamed Chubb, attended grade school, they played together, laughed and cried, and shared secrets that only sisters can share. On one particular day, Betty caught the eye of a classmate and was immediately smitten. Regardless of the fact that they were primary school students, Betty saw a young man named Harrison Bond, whom everyone affectionately called Junior, and she ran to her sister Chubb and said, I'm going to marry that boy. It's funny how fate plays a role in our lives, and just when we think everything is going perfectly, our circumstances change, and life takes us in a new direction. For the Edmiston family, that direction was north. The year was around 1944, and several Olive Hill families had already migrated to Richland County, Ohio, in search of employment and better lives. Theodore and Hattie packed up their belongings and moved the family to Ontario, Ohio. Shortly after their arrival, they welcomed their fifth child, another son, whom they named Donald, but who went by the nickname Butch. By the time she was 16, Betty found a job at Mansfield's Ritz Theater, 
and worked behind the candy counter selling sweet treats to the moviegoers. And just like that year's top grossing film, The Best Years of Our Lives, Betty might just have felt that this was one of the best years in her own life. Betty felt a sense of pride by earning her own money and being able to help out the family by contributing to the collective income. Betty's younger sister, Mary, recounted a time when she and a friend took the bus into town to see a movie at the Ritz Theater. Mary had just enough money with her for the bus ride to and from town and to purchase her movie ticket. Like most youngsters that age, Mary peered through the counter glass, wishful for a tasty chocolatey treat or perhaps a buttery box of popcorn. Seeing the desire in her young sister's eye and knowing that Mary didn't have enough money, Betty took the bus fare money out of her own sweater pocket and used it to purchase some refreshments for Mary. Unbeknownst to Mary, that gesture prevented Betty from having enough money to ride the bus home. And after work, Betty walked the nearly six miles back to her house. As Betty helped to look after her younger siblings, she took her responsibility as being the eldest quite seriously. Whether it was by being the adventurous one who helped her dad with outdoor chores, or by being the nurturing one who comforted her younger sisters and brother, she demonstrated much love for her family. There's a Latin phrase made popular by the Roman poet Virgil, which states, Audentes fortuna huat, meaning, Fortune favors the bold. Nearly a decade earlier, Betty boldly proclaimed on that primary school play yard that she would marry her fellow classmate. And although their family moved away to another state, Fortune smiled on the infatuated young lady as she learned the exciting news that the family of Harrison Bond Jr. was moving to Richland County. What would the future hold for Betty Edmiston? Tune in next Monday and find out. Watered down women with diluted dreams are home for joy has been washed down the stream. Grab a shovel and join me each Monday as we dig a little deeper and uncover the tragedies of watered-down women. Searching for love, no pain in this world, with no help from above.